Well, good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Habakkuk. Book of Habakkuk, that's where we're going to be studying from this morning. I'd like to uh, echo the words that Brother Kyle gave as he welcomed us all out. And It is so good for us to be here, to be in this nice warm building together amidst this terrible snowstorm that he alluded to in his announcements. We, uh, we are truly blessed to be here with one another and to lift one another up as we have sang songs of praise that Ronnie has led us in and remember the death of our Savior as, as Richard led us in the Lord's Supper. And I hope that as we continue in this worship service, we will continue to devote our, our attention and our hearts to what it is we have gathered together to do, to study from God's Word, to praise Him, to magnify and lift up His holy name. And that's a fair bit of, of what is going to happen in the book of Habakkuk. That name, Habakkuk, certainly is a mouthful, one which I have heard pronounced about a hundred different ways uh, and of which I am not confident that I feel I am able to get up and tell you which one is the exact right way to say it. But what I do know is despite how, how terribly uh, difficult sometimes the name may be to pronounce, the book is rather, rather not so much of a mouthful. It's one of the shorter books that we have in the section that we call the Minor Prophets, only consisting of three chapters, uh, in total 56 verses. Uh, and so as we look at it this morning, I'm confident we will be able to look and read through the entirety of the book. Uh, but what we'll find is in such a small book, it packs a monumental lesson. It is so rich in meaning for the, the recipients, the, the, the readers of this book in the days of Habakkuk and also in our days today. It's a book in which the author seems to have accepted enthusiastically his message, or what we might say he has embraced his message. As we get into the context, we're going to, what, what, first thing I want us to find out is the name Habakkuk actually can be translated embracer or embraced. And he is certainly someone who has embraced what God is giving him in a time when it had been very easy to, to ignore it and to focus on the world around him. Habakkuk is one of three prophets that we have absolutely no knowledge of their backstory. It is, it is uh, supposed that maybe he was of the line of Levi, because we will find later that he is writing and composing uh, a song that will be sung in, uh, likely in the temple. But really, we have no information of him. He joins the ranks of Obadiah and Malachi, and that the only thing we know is their name. But he also belongs to another group in the Minor Prophets of just three, him and Haggai and Zechariah that are specifically labeled prophets. The rest of them, as you read through them, save Jonah, who is referenced in 2 Kings, the rest of them don't have the, the moniker prophet attributed to them, except for Habakkuk, Haggai, and Zechariah. And so we, we find these little tidbits about him, but we really just don't know much more about the man Habakkuk. We do know a lot about his attitude, however, it is one that trusts in the Lord even when things don't quite make sense. When he looks around and says, I don't quite understand this. In fact, I think that is best seen in chapter 2 and verse 1 when he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am 
reproved. The word reproved that he uses there. It describes being critically addressed by someone or something in which to, to defend themselves or to show disapproval. The New Translation may say that he waits to hear how his complaint may be answered. But his purpose in that is, I know that I don't understand what's happening. And I know that even though I've brought up these, these complaints against God, I know that He is able to teach me. He doesn't understand why things are the way they are, and He doesn't understand why God is allowing certain things to happen, but He knows He's in no place to judge God or His methods. He knows that when He brings His concerns or His complaints to the Lord, the Lord is going to more or less set him straight. And that sounds like a terrifying thing. And I think it should sound terrifying to be set straight by God. Why would we ever want that? And yet that's often what we exact, that's exactly what we need. We need God to set us straight in our ways, coming to Him in humility and asking Him for that. Asking for Him to set us on the way of truth is much better than fumbling our own way through the darkness, coming to erroneous and, and, and wrong conclusions that must be set straight on the day of judgment. And Habakkuk knows this. And so he goes to the Father and says, These are my complaints. Now I will listen and I will be taught by a God that I know I can trust to lead me. When we come to when this book was written, the time of the writing, that's a little bit hard to know for sure, but I do believe there are some things that give us details. Because again, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk to try and piece together when he wrote this. But in chapter 1 and verse 6, God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people. That's a clue there as to when this might have been written. Reference to the Chaldeans is most likely a reference to the Babylonians. Babylon was the chief city, the capital city of the Chaldean dynasty that has led most notably to us, who we think of, by Nebuchadnezzar II. But it was before him that his father, Nabopolazar, came and conquered Jerusalem and Judea and all of these places. See, at this time, the empire has been expanding and, and, and growing early on as, as they have begun to fight back and rebel against Assyria, who had control for some time. And so there's another hint in the first verse when God says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, verse 5, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Now that could be a reference to the fact that this is early on in Babylon's uh, rise to power. Uh, and it's maybe a, a reference to the fact that Assyria has been fighting against Jerusalem for some time and, and Judea. And, and you will remember, as we talked about that with some of the other prophets, they, they were spared that because of their faithfulness. Because of King Hezekiah and turning back to the God, they were spared that. And maybe the reason he's saying, even though I'm telling you that I'm raising up the Chaldeans, you're not going to believe it, is because they're such a small nation. And that would tell us the time frame is somewhere near the beginning of the 7th century, end of the 8th century. But I don't believe that's quite the reason why, because we see how, we see how uh, Habakkuk responds. When we read through it, he responds. He seems to know a lot about the Chaldeans. So I believe the reason that God is saying you're not going to believe it is because just how terrible the Chaldeans had shown themselves to be in conquest. Mighty and vicious 
and, and uh, a people that cared not about the, the lands that they went in, about the animals that they went in of, of the land. They cared not about the people that they killed in their march, and they did not serve the God of Israel. And so I believe this is a, a better picture than of what God is saying. You're not going to believe who I'm going to use. I'm going to use the Chaldeans. And that would tell me that most likely then, this is probably happening somewhere around the very end not the beginning, but the end of the 7th century, maybe around 625 to 605 B.C., which tell, would put it in a time frame not too far removed. 605 B.C. is when Nebuchadnezzar finally comes in, takes over for his father, and he takes that first wave of Jews out. And if you remember, there's a young man taken out of there at that time by the name of Daniel. And so this is a book that's probably not too far separated from that time, from the time that Daniel is taken out of Judah and taken into into exile, and if you'll remember, Daniel is going to likewise, just like Habakkuk, prophesy things that are unbelievable. How could these things happen? And in effect, he's going to be showing the same thing that Habakkuk shows here, which is God's plans, as, as higher than us that they are, that they may not make sense, they are not affected. They are not controlled or dictated by the actions of men. Men do not interfere with what God does. Rather, God rules over all. It would also tell us that this was a book written as a contemporary to the prophet Jeremiah. And it's similar in, in their attitudes. Jeremiah and Habakkuk both look at the people around them and they see great wickedness in the land and they grieve and lament. That's why Jeremiah is referred to as the lamenting prophet. Sometimes to the book of Habakkuk as referred to, is referred to as a book that goes from a sob to a song. Both of them have, have great anguish for what they see in the world, but especially in the people of God around them. And so with that context being laid, uh, the book being written probably at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel is no more, they have been conquered by Assyria, and the southern kingdom still remains, but they really don't look like the people of God anymore. Habakkuk looks around, he sees all the godly, godlessness in, in the country and in the world, and he wonders a very relatable question that many times we wonder as well, and that is, how long? He looks around the world around him, he says, God, why is this happening? And God, how long are you going to let this go on? This doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem to be in your nature. And what's the, one more thing that's interesting then about the book of Habakkuk, is it's not a message from God to His people. How many times have we read the oracle of, a pro, of, of one of these prophets to the people? It was to the, the city of Nineveh, to the, the kingdom of Israel, to the people of Judah. Over and over again, these are messages from God to a, an audience. Habakkuk is not that. Habakkuk is a conversation between him and with his complaints and his questions to his God and his God's response to those. This is going to be the general question of the book, and it's going to be broken down into these conversations. And the purpose is to remind the readers of that book through what Habakkuk's, his search for meaning, through his uh, looking for answers, it's meant to, to be read by the readers of that day and give them answers from the Lord as well that reminds them and helps them to understand and helps them to know that I can trust God even when I live in a godless society. I can trust God when the world around me 
whether it be the, the, the people that should be belonging to him or the world that, that cares nothing for him is doing wicked, terrible things, I can know the God that I serve. And brethren, when we read the headlines today, whether they be national news, whether it be world news, if you get in social media and wait around in that quagmire of a mess, watch television, we are reminded over and over again, we live in a godless society. We live in a world that has turned so far from the Lord. We could take a great message from the book of Habakkuk. And so I hope that you will read with me as we go through this book. In chapter 1, I just want to read the first 11 verses to get us started. It says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me to see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their hordes of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through the, like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. Those whose strength is their God. Habakkuk approaches God, as we've mentioned already, with his heavy heart. He's looked around and he's seen justice amongst God's people has been defiled. And he notes that, God, I, either you don't hear my cries, maybe you don't see what's going on. Because verse 3 almost sounds like an indictment on God. Why do you make me see this iniquity, God? And where does all this iniquity reside? We might be tempted to say he's talking about the, the Assyrians who, are fighting, who have fought against them in the past and fought against Judah. But more accurately, what he's talking about is Judah herself amongst his own people. And you think back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah used very similar words uh, throughout his prophecy when he talked about how the sin of the people, how they had turned their back on God, and because of these iniquities, and because of their wickedness and their desire for violence and destruction, it had led to an imbalance of the righteous amongst the wicked. They, they, they were outnumbered. And because of that, the law isn't upheld. It is, it is perverted. Righteous people aren't there to take a stand and uphold what is, what is right. And so Isaiah also takes, uh, and, and Habakkuk follows, in the sense that be, because of the sin of the people, there can't be justice and there can't be righteousness. And so God, why is this happening? Why are these things so? And why don't you hear my cries to change this wicked nation? And God says, I do see it. He responds. 
He says, I hear what's going on, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to bring in the Babylonians, and I'm going to destroy it. That's God's response to this, this broken-hearted plea. And I have to imagine that that leaves Habakkuk in a little bit of a state of shock. What do you mean, God? What do you mean, the, the, the Chaldeans? What do, you, what, what do you mean, the Babylonians? How, how, can you, how can you bring in someone like that? And I think his response is similar. I think it's similar to maybe if, if we were told today by God, God, this, this nation that we live in, a nation that, that was supposedly founded on, on, on people having the, the freedom to worship you the way that, that your scripture says for us to worship you, to leave the the tyranny of a kingdom that says you must do it the way the king says, and for us to be able to say, no, I want to be able to do it the way that God, the true king, says, and we will, we will try to originate our country on that, that country seems to have turned its back completely on you. And justice seems like it is completely just a thing of the past because there's so much corruption in our judicial systems. And God, what are you going to do? Do you not see this? And it would be as if God responded saying, I do see it. And I, believe me, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send in a country like Iran or Afghanistan or one of these countries that does not believe in the God of the Bible majority-wise, does not hold those things to be true. One of these countries that has a radically different view and has done things against uh, our people that we would say are completely violent and wicked, terrible acts. What if God said, I'm sending a country like that against the United States of America to solve the problem of sin. I think we would respond a lot like Habakkuk. Say, how can you do that, God? Look at what they believe. Look at, the, at their actions. Look at the violence they committed. Look at their wickedness. It's funny how we shift from a prayer that says, God, do you not see our wickedness? When God says, yes, I do, Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at their wickedness too, God. Don't, don't, forget about ours for a minute. How can you use this wicked nation? If you can imagine a conversation like that, I think you can begin to put yourself in Habakkuk's frame of mind. And if you want to read for yourself his response to this, you can read verses 12 through what we've already mentioned, chapter 2, verse 1. He's going to bring up these same complaints. He's going to bring up that, God, the Chaldeans are evil. They have done some evil things as a nation. They are violent, and they are oppressive, and they worship man-made idols. Now, wait a minute. We, we do those same things, don't we, God? You know, as he talks about and he describes the Chaldeans in these sections, it's, it, it's so sad that you can take those descriptions out and overlay them on Judah, on the people of God, and find out that he could be describing the same people and it would be hard to tell the difference. How sad it is when God's people begin to look like the world around them. Habakkuk wants to know what God's going to do and now he's, he's beyond shocked, but, but he also has a heart that we've already mentioned is, is very good. 
in a disheartening revelation, his heart says, God, I, I don't know how you can do these things. And I don't know how, how our world has gotten this bad. But I do know who you are. And I know that I can trust you. And so I will listen to what you have to say. And that brings us to chapter 2. And we're going to read God's response to him as he seeks an answer for why God is allowing and why God is using the things that are going on. So starting in verse 2, The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. This is another picture that this is probably near the time when the Babylonians did come in and start conquering Judah. Uh, that God says, this is not far in advance. This is, this is not way down the road, guys. I've been telling you that punishment was coming for years. Well, now it's here. Now it is upon you. And so you write the message and you get it out to everybody. They need to know what I'm about to say. And then verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants." And woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the, from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire? And nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Woe to you who makes your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourselves drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is it, the idol, when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts its own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. In this section where God responds to Habakkuk, Habakkuk has said, God, I don't know what you are thinking. I don't understand this in any sense whatsoever, but believe you me, I will listen because I know you. So let me have it. 
And in this section, God lets him have it. He tells him, this is what's going on. And he pronounces these five woes that are meant to be a warning. But before he says that, and before we get to that, he makes this profound statement in verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous will live by his faith. I think sometimes we make a mistake of reading passages like this and trying to read them locally. God is talking to the Babylonians. And don't get me wrong, this is all written contextually against the Babylonians, the things that he's bringing up here. But I don't think we need to read this locally. I think we need to read this globally. God's warnings and God's message here is not just for the people of Babylon as a warning to them to watch out. It is against Judah. It is against the world because God isn't just the God of those who follow Him or claim to follow Him. God is the God of creation. He is the God of all things. And so all things belong to Him. And the proud Israelites that maybe would hear this message and say, certainly not, those barbaric Babylonians, Assyria tried this. God was with us. The Babylonians, we don't need to be worried about them. They needed to hear this message. The proud man, he's not right in his soul. The righteous live by his faith. But you know, the Babylonians needed it as well. Because the Babylonians are going to come in. They are going to conquer Judah. And then we're going to find, later on in the life of the king Nebuchadnezzar, as he stands and looks at his mighty new kingdom and says to himself, Look what I have made. And God humbles him in a heartbeat. The proud, their soul are not right within them. The righteous will live by his faith. A statement that God has made here that will echo through time. And we will come back to it at the end of this lesson. But as he continues on, he pronounces these five woes now. Beginning in verse 6 with the woe for him that increases what is not his. One that takes by, by thievery and deception. In verse 9, he says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Or him who makes his neighbors drink to make them drunk to look upon their, their nakedness. One that's taking advantage of those that he should be caring for. Or verse 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake. Woe against idolatry. Again, it's sad that these woes, these woes of, uh, uh, of people that are filled with, with deceit and trickery and, and trying to get things from others for themselves and, and, and trying to increase their wealth at the expense of whoever else might come about, filled with violence and oppression and taking advantage of those that they should love like their neighbors, people that are given to idolatry, that describes Babylon pretty clearly. That describes Judah as well. God is saying, it doesn't matter who you are. These things do not bring joy and prosperity. They bring hardships. They bring pain. They bring woe. But then he ends with verse 20. What a powerful verse. As he has just talked to them about the mute 
sleeping idol that they have raised up as teachers. He reminds them that God, the Lord, is in His holy temple. Let all the world, let all the earth be silent before Him. Now this idea of the Lord is in His holy temple, that, that could be in the sense of the presence of God in the literal temple in Judah. And you know, I think the Judeans might be tempted to take that as something of comfort. God is with us. Who can be against us? He's in the temple. And there's a terrible army that they say is coming against us, but God is in His holy temple. But I believe that God is in His holy temple here to the, Jew, to the Jews of Judah, not in a sense of salvation, but in a sense of judgment. He is here and He has seen. You, what you have done is not blind. He's not blind to. He's watching. And that's also a reminder to the Babylonians. He is using them as a punishing rod for His people. But as He said at the beginning of the book, they are going to be held guilty, those whose strength is in their God. And that is a great description of the Babylonians who did not look to the God of creation, but to the many gods that they had created to be their sources of strength. He's reminding the world, the judge is here, and he sees everything. He sees what is going on, and nothing is escaping his eyes the one which the world must give an account to. And then he adds on at the end of that, because of this, let the world be silent before him. A reminder that God is sovereign over all things. He has created all things. He rules all things. He has owned ownership of all things. And all the noise that this evil world creates that fills the hearts and minds of the wicked and the righteous alike to distract and discomfort and cause them to be distraught, all that noise, it fades away at the presence of the Lord. And when God speaks, as we have already seen throughout His Word, very creation listens. And so the earth needs to be silent before God. Instead of doing all the talking, instead of doing all the planning, instead of doing all the... the surmising as how things must be, be silent and listen to what the holy God who is setting in His temple, the judge, has to say. And so Habakkuk finally now, after all has been said and done, has an opportunity to respond in chapter 3. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagoyeneth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight, and His rays flashing from His hands, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Was it your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea? 
that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made bare, and the rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil. To lay him open from thigh to neck, you pierced with his own spears the head of his thrones. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. And you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no flock food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk in my high places. Habakkuk responds with a song, a prayer song. And he says at the beginning of it, this song is to be sung or, or is written in the, in the form of Shigoyeneth. But that word is also translated Shigoyen. And you will find that in Psalm chapter 7, verse 1, when David does the same thing. And what that word means is it is a poem written with great passion and great emotion for what the context of the poem is to relate. And it's similar, and I'm going to say right now that I'm doing a disservice to that word, and I'm doing a disservice to song leading when I say this, but it's similar to when we see the little F over top of our songs in our song. But we know that we see that little, that little P, that it means the song is sung quieter, but, but it is sung with, with, with solemnness. When we see that those little Fs, or sometimes the, the double F that is right there, that, that, that means that we not just sing louder, but we sing with emotion, we sing with excitement and, and, and triumph in these songs. That's what he's saying here. What he's telling us is this is a song of triumph. And I have to go, why write a song of triumph, Habakkuk? Why write that? Because we know the outcome. The country is going to be overturned by the Babylonians. And he seems to know the outcome. He says, I will wait for the people who will invade us. In three separate ways, the Babylonians come in, conquering the land, and transporting massive amounts of peoples out of Judea into exile, spread across the Babylon Empire. But from those people in exile comes a remnant. That remnant of people return to Judea, to Judah. They return to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Babylon. They rebuild the walls that had been torn down. They rebuild the people 
around the very God that Habakkuk knows and trusts. And then from that remnant comes a king. A king who will arise and lead God's people into a new kingdom. A kingdom not reserved for the Jew only, but opened also to the Gentile alike. A kingdom built not off violence and oppression and wickedness, but off compassion and humility and faith. A kingdom built off of the statement that Habakkuk is told by God and again echoes throughout the New Testament. The righteous will live by faith. What Habakkuk ends with is he says, it doesn't matter that I don't understand. And it doesn't matter how bad things get here. I know a nation is coming in to invade us. And I know crops, they may fail. Our, our cattle, they die. He's describing, describing cataclysmic circumstances. He's describing things that mean that means death. Famine is on the way. Famine is followed by disease, and, 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 and that always leads to great death. Things are going to get bad. But even when facing my own death, Habakkuk says, I praise God. And I can rejoice in God because He is the God of my salvation, and He is my strength. And he ends his book. And he leaves an open-ended question for the readers in his day. And he leaves an open-ended question for me and for you. His question is, will you do likewise? Not knowing why, not understanding how, facing a godless society that may result in your death, will you trust in your God? Do you know who it is that you trust in? I told you that phrase was echoed into the New Testament. I want to look at one more verse. The lesson will be yours. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Paul quotes Habakkuk's book when he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. How can I become a righteous person? living by faith so that I can live. How can I have that for me? Well, understand that we have to just go up one more verse to verse 16. When Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the good news of Jesus' death burial and resurrection. John writes at the close of his gospel account of, of what Paul is actually referring to here, the gospel account. He writes at the close of his in John chapter 20, these things have been recorded so that you may believe and believing you may have life in His name. Faith. Trusting in the gospel in such a way that it promotes you, it calls you to follow it, gives us life in Christ. Gives us salvation. This morning, this morning, maybe you've not been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Maybe you have not truly heard it in a way that, that has caused you to stop and to think about what that message means, what that good news means for you, and you don't know what is required of me to have faith in it so that I can follow. That would be our desire this morning is to help you with that. But for so many of us here, we have heard the gospel message. Have we allowed Satan, have we allowed the world around us to distract us from the God that we should know, the God that we can trust, the God that we can follow in faith? so as to receive true life. That's our desire here today, is to help one another to receive the, the eternal life that we can only have a hope for of through Christ Jesus. If we can do something to assist you in that, won't you please come forward right now as we sing the song of invitation.